we put so much pressure on ourselves in thinking that we should know the answer and we don't. The comforting piece of it is that every decision we make as we evolve and grow up actually does play a part in where we ultimately land. Rue Zuckerman discovered spinning at a difficult crossroads in her life, but she was thrilled when it turned into her next entrepreneurial endeavor, opening her own studio. In this interview at a View from the Top event at Stanford Graduate School of Business, Zuckerman talks with students about how, through SoulCycle and now Flywheel, she learned how to take back her power in relationships and step into her role as a leader. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. Thank you. Would you prefer if this was uh, an interview on bikes right now? <laughs> Absolutely not. Have you, ever, <laughs> have you ever done a class for 600 people? Never. Would you want to try? Yes. Okay. <laughs> right after this, meet in the quad. <laughs> Ruth, thank you so much for being here, for coming to Stanford, for being a part of the View from the Top program. We have a lot to cover. We do. Thank you. If it's all right, can we just jump right in? Let's do it. So I want to take us back, all the way back, you describe some very key moments in your childhood as being pivotal to the successes and challenges and the obstacles you ultimately overcame, both per personally and professionally. And a lot of that comes from dance. What role did dance play in your childhood? It played a huge role. I discovered ballet classes when I was eight years old. My mother decided it would be a good idea. She said I was getting a belly. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> um, and so she put me in dance class. Little did she know, she, she basically created a monster in that I just took to it immediately. And there was something about dancing that just made me feel great. It was an escape. And uh, back to my mother, she was, she was a difficult woman. She was narcissistic. Um, there wasn't much room for me. It uh, wasn't much room for my voice. And so in retrospect, when I look back, it made sense that I got so addicted to dancing because it, was, it became my way of expressing myself without words, without a voice. And I think in, in your story, there's so much grit and perseverance that I think explains a lot of where, where you were able to get to. And you describe overcoming challenges like the relationship with your mother that often get overlooked when we talk about the typical type of challenges here in Silicon Valley or, or in leadership or in entrepreneurship. Could we spend a minute just on those types of setbacks? What was it like, uh, even in a household and in, in your relationship with your mother, trying to fit into someone else's definition of success on such a personal context? Well, it had major repercussions for me because growing up with a mother like that, uh, your self-esteem is not going to be very high. And uh, if you're always deferring to someone and that person is always telling you that they know more than you do, it would make sense. It would be very hard to build any kind of confidence. So that kind of really spelled out my future. Um, and... I'm a huge proponent of therapy, and, and we might get to that later, but um, it was really the work that I did in therapy that helped me the most in terms of discovering who I am, why I am who I am, and 
how to build the confidence to which had gotten me to where I, I've gotten to. And just staying on that point for a minute, you describe in your memoir that years later, after launching very successful brands and being a very successful entrepreneur in almost any dimension that you look at entrepreneurship from, you were divorced and not yet remarried. And every winter, was it, your mother would write a card saying, here's to a better year next year? Yes. And I know that seems extreme, but when I read it, I felt that that actually is quite relatable. There are people in all of our lives where they demand something that we feel we have to go uphold. What was that like struggling through that version of success that wasn't wasn't your own? Uh, I mean, it was part generational, I would say, for my mother. But um, actually, the words were same thing every year. Hopefully, this year will be a better, better year. That was after I, start, I started SoulCycle. Um, so <laughs> when I say generational, what she meant every year when she wrote these cards was, I hope you find a man. And I find it interesting to myself that uh, it took me a long time after divorce uh, to really settle, settle into a relationship with a man. And I don't know if, par, if I subconsciously knew that um, I really shouldn't go that route. I really need to figure out myself first before that falls into place. And going right there to that moment in life where you described being divorced with two young daughters. I think they were six years old. Six. Is that right? Mm-hmm. What, what was going through your mind as the next step, both personally and then professionally, it seems like, would follow later? Honestly, Mike, I had no idea. I was a fish out of water. I made this difficult decision to leave the marriage. Six-year-old twin girls in tow. I was now a single mother, um, didn't have much on the financial front, and had to figure out my life, again, having no idea how to even start. Uh, And that was when I found spinning. Walk us through that, because today spinning is... I mean, do we have any SoulCycle fans or Flywheel folks in the audience? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. That's amazing. So today it is, it is part of the lexicon. It's in our, in our culture and society. But what year was it when you started spinning? What was the landscape like? Because I imagine it's very different than today. So I was, again, newly out of the marriage, embarking on this entirely foreign new life. And, um, you know, when you're going through a trauma, one thing that I learned is really important is to take care of yourself and stay healthy and and strong. And so I had a gym membership at what was the Reebok Club on the Upper West Side of Manhattan at the time. And it was this beautiful full-service gym that offered every kind of group fitness you could imagine, swimming pool, basketball court, uh, really an incredible place. And I was able to keep my gym membership with the divorce. And so I went there every day and I used to see these spin classes going on and I found it very intriguing. It was kind of a floor to ceiling glass room, dark, room was full, the sound of the wheels, club music blaring. Um, And I thought that looks interesting, but I was intimidated and didn't know if I could really get myself in there by myself and try it, but I did. And literally within the first class, I knew that this was something beyond exercise. It felt like an experience for me. It was a cathartic experience. I felt that in the 45 minutes from beginning to end, 
there was almost a mini transformation. I got off the bike at the end of the class and felt empowered and um, felt that I could really conquer my day and the challenges that presented themselves. As a quick time out to that, I love how in business school we do cases and courses and six month learning programs to try to have a light bulb moment that you got getting on a bike one day. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Immediately. Yeah. Sounds like you took the shortcut. But, uh. <laughs> Thanks for that perspective. Anytime. So you get into spinning. It sounds like you learned a lot about yourself first. It wasn't a light bulb moment necessarily to, oh, I need to go create a brand. What did you find out when you did some of the soul searching that seemed to come from getting into the bike? Uh, it really um, helped me realize how much strength I needed to build. And again, that this, there was something about this that allowed me to recognize that this was the way I was going to do it. And um, it, it just showed me the importance of confidence and believing in, in myself and believing in my ideas. And, you know, that my mother really didn't know everything. And that, that type of learning, I think, in a school like the GSB, where there's a very touchy-feely mentality to approaching business, mm -hmm. uh, that resonates, I'm sure, with us in the audience. But can you break it down to what that actually meant for going later into business and how you applied some of that personal learning into actually making a business around it? Well, I really focused a lot on my, on my experience and how it helped me. And you know, very quickly, I realized everybody has trauma, everybody has problems and challenges in their life. I saw what it did for me and I so believed in it that I just wanted to share my experience with everyone else and I wanted everyone else to have the same chance to empower themselves. And so that was one of the you know, motivating forces in my getting to where I got to with this concept of spinning, um, so yeah. Do you remember that conversation you had where it all of a sudden started to come together with your co-founders at the time or your would-be co-founders in starting SoulCycle? Uh, you know, one of the co-founders approached me with the idea. Um, it was an idea I had dreamed about but never had the capital, and she did. And so, um, you know, she clearly, she was a fan of mine, a big writer in my class, and clearly recognized my passion for it. Um, she didn't know anything about teaching spin or uh, what went into it. And so she depended on me to be the face of the business and to provide the method. And, and so she, she definitely appreciated it. And as the discussions got going, you mm -hmm. write, and I quote, it had been a quarter century since I gave up on my dream to become a professional dancer. And this mm -hmm. is on the brink of starting a brand and at the time a fledging startup. Yes. What's going through your mind the night before you start SoulCycle? The night before we opened? Yep. Uh, a lot of pride and appreciation really for everything that led up to it. You know, we hear this a lot, but I lived it and it's so true that everything we do in our life and everything that creates this path that we take contributes to where we land. And you brought up the dance classes before they so tied in to the spin class that I eventually helped to create. And when I say that, what I mean is 
I was obsessed with music from an early age. And through dance classes, I learned so much about music and different genres of music. Being a dancer, I choreographed to music. I knew how to move to music. And really, to a certain extent, what I did was I just transferred that experience onto a bike. Um, you know, the discipline it takes to, to be a dance student and to grow up as a dancer and become a professional dancer, um, that also transferred to the spin class. You know, when I started SoulCycle, we decided that um, people should applaud after the class. The instructor puts a lot into it. Um, you know, especially when you're going into a boutique experience, you're paying up for it, and you're paying for an instructor spending two hours the night before making his or her playlist. And the applause is also for each other and for encouraging the community. I mean, that's just a simple thing that I learned from dance class. And the other really um, key ingredient to the success of boutique fitness is the personal connection that we would make with our riders. And again, no different from a dance class. If I was in a dance class and my dance teacher said, beautiful job, Ruth, that took me through my day. That made my day. And so in a spin class, if you point out someone in the class, if you make that personal connection, they're coming back the next day. So you start SoulCycle and plot twist, it works. <laughs> what did you learn from that bootstrapping experience? Because it wasn't that you went out, you raised a lot of money, you figured it out. In fact, we can get to the growth part later. You were against expanding super fast and getting mm -hmm. off to the races. You describe a moment where in your first center, I believe, they wouldn't allow you to put signage on the outside of the street entrance, so you made it a cool, have to know someone thing to walk through a gym and get to the back near the exit <laughs> to find the SoulCycle gym. What were the learnings there from doing it yourself and not raising capital? Well, truthfully, that was completely luck. I mean, we signed the lease, and it was after we signed the lease that the landlord said, oh, by the way, no signage. And we thought, oh my god, what are we going to do? And Because we were in the back of a building, you couldn't see us from the street. And um, Elizabeth, uh, one of my co-founders, came up with the idea of just putting this rickshaw outside, painting it yellow, and putting the name of our business on it to attract attention. But again, um, it eventually became just, just what you said. People had to know about it to, to go there. And again, completely unintentional, but it took on this kind of cool factor and you had to you had to know someone to know that it was there and you know in terms of a learning lesson I mean that one we just we had no idea um, but it but it worked and and it's interesting I believe a lot in kind of trickle down theory and and that the aura that you create in your business has a lot to do with who's at the top and the founders and you know, eventually the partnership didn't work out and, and the truth is my two co-founders were similar and to each other but very different from me. And, and I feel that the business took on a lot of their personality. Um, interestingly, when I started Flywheel with um, two men, uh, the dynamic was completely different. There was a certain respect that the three of us had for each other, respect for each other's expert areas of expertise. And um, 
we had a very different, we created a very different aura at Flywheel. And to summarize it, you know, I would always talk about SoulCycle eventually becoming a very uh, exclusive feeling, having a very exclusive feeling, while Flywheel had a very inclusive feeling. We were about including everyone, every shape, size, and color. Um, SoulCycle took on a certain, um, I'm blanking on the word, but there was like a prestige about going to SoulCycle. And again, no judgment here, it worked. And you know, obviously SoulCycle became huge. And, and so both, both personalities worked, but they were just very different. Could you talk a little bit more about partnership? I feel like when you decide to go after something, who you go in with is probably the most critical piece. This seemed, as you describe it, somewhat happenstance as you were approached by one of the co-founders. Where was the tension uh, ultimately in terms of thinking about growth, what you all wanted? What mm -hmm. were the key learnings from that? Really important question, and I get this all the time about choosing partners in business. And you know, the bottom line is obviously there's no guarantee ever. Um, you know, sometimes I think about the fact that uh, my two co-founders of SoulCycle are two women who. I didn't know for a long time, and, and I thought, well, maybe you should only you know, go into business with someone you do know for a long time. Um, but that's not the case either. I actually just heard a story of two friends who started a business and knew each other for 25 years, and sure enough, they start the business, money gets involved, the, the relationship fell apart, and, and the business, business partnership dissolved. But um, what I learned was, um, it really helps to know yourself when it comes to picking partners. And the truth is, when I made the agreement to go into business with these two co-founders, I didn't know myself. I really hadn't done that kind of exploration. And what I ended up doing was, I ended up with two partners who were very much like my mother. And they were two people that I, my knee jerk was to defer to them to really let them overpower me and to not have a voice, I very easily slipped into that role. And as a result, the partnership fell apart. And obviously, that was a huge uh, learning lesson for me, a huge light bulb moment for me. Um, the other very obvious one was have really good legal protection. <laughs> when you go into a partnership and a business, and I didn't. And um, unfortunately, I paid a big toll for that. I appreciate the, the vulnerability because that's not often uh, a takeaway that people would want to share. So going into Flywheel, mm -hmm. which a lot of people, when, when they hear your story, they, they think of SoulCycle or they think of Flywheel, they don't think that you actually were behind both. And you described Flywheel as your first true business venture. Yes. Can you walk us through that transition of leaving Seoul? I believe there was a stint as an instructor for Seoul, which yes. must have been weird. I have to take a deep breath before <laughs> this answer. I, uh, our separation agreement was signed, and I was packing up my things to leave. And one of my SoulCycle co-founders looked at me and said, where are you going? And I, I looked at her like she had three heads. And I said, where am I going? I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? We thought you'd just be an instructor, is what she said to me. 
And I don't even think I answered. And I turned around and started walking out. And she kind of yelled to me as I was walking out. And she said, OK, well, just promise me that whatever other offers you get, um, will you come back to me? Because I'll top that offer. And we really want you to be here as just an instructor. And I don't even think I turned around and I, and I left. And I got out there, and here I was now, a single mom of uh, two girls in high school, uh, you know, not in, in a, not in a very strong position financially. And I went out there to see what I was going to do next. And the reality was it was still very early in the industry, and there were no other boutique businesses at that point. So it really meant I would have to go back to one of the big box gyms and teach classes for 40 bucks a class. And I couldn't do it. And so I went back. I went back to her and I said, okay, well, I got this offer. And then sure enough, she topped the offer very uh, generously. And I decided to do it. And it was one of the hardest decisions I ever made, and I did it for two years. And every day I walked in to teach class, I would have to look at both of them. And I always say I probably you know, grew a gray hair every single day, and it was torturous, and it never got any less torturous for two years. But what happened was I would walk in, and then I would get on my podium and get on my bike, and there I was in front of all of my people that I brought into this business, all the customers. And they didn't know what happened, and that helped a little bit. Eventually they did, obviously, but um, I would hit the play button, my class would start, and all of that negativity would just go away for 45 minutes because I was just up there doing what I do, which was connecting with my people. They connected with me. And we all had this cathartic experience together. And that's what got me through it. Lastly, um, it was the summer of 2009 where I was teaching a soul cycle class and it was then that I met my future co-founder of Flywheel. So if I hadn't been there, I guess that never would have happened. And right before meeting <clears throat> this, the, the would-be founder of Flywheel, mm -hmm. was there a moment, because I think we tend to glorify entrepreneurship as, as a no-brainer, must do, don't look back. Was there a moment where you did look back and you, and you think, well, I'm now caring for a family solely on my shoulders. This, this venture didn't work out and it's a painful next two years. <laughs> did you ever think about what life could have been had you not taken that risk? The risk with? Soul cycle. Uh, no, because I knew that, in, you know, despite the negativity and, and the trauma, um, I learned a lot. And there were so many positive parts of it. So no, I didn't regret it at all. And going into Flywheel, you're now at a point where you've pioneered spinning and spin classes and that, that sense of community and, and you've built a brand around it once. What did you feel like you could do different in a space that you, 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 de you defined and built already? And now what would be a competitor? Well, uh, my co-founder Flywheel made it very easy because he came up with this idea of attaching technology to the bike and 
bringing this little computer screen to the, uh, to the bike so that we could finally measure exactly what we were doing on the bike, how hard we were working, um, you know, what our resistance levels were, how fast we were going. And I knew that that would change the experience significantly. And um, I, I doubted it in the beginning because Soul Cycle for me was so much about the mindful component of the ride. And I thought, I don't know if we have to focus on numbers, we might you know, compromise that component, the mindful component, that's so important to me. And they, they just begged me, just get on the bike and just go in there by yourself and, and work with it and see what you think. And I did. And in that period of time, 40 minutes, I knew, I knew this was gonna be a game changer because I could still do the mindful part and have the numbers. And um, I just felt like this was taking it to the next level. <clears throat> you described that your partners had a different approach. You talked about in, in terms of personality, but there was also a business nugget where they felt that you could actually grow the business by attracting folks who otherwise wouldn't be cyclers or spin goers. What was that process like of actually identifying a new market audience where there wasn't one already? You know, this business is, this type of business is honestly so word of mouth. You know, for the entire time I was at SoulCycle and Flywheel, we never advertised once. So again, it always came back to connecting with people. And I connected with the Flywheel clientele pretty much in the same way I did with the Soul Cycle clientele and it was just about making <clears throat> excuse me making it personal and make making people feel noticed at the end of the day that's what that's what we all want an interesting counterbalance to that is you describe that empathy should be in moderation when going forward in business which also runs counter to a lot of the things we hear about especially today and how do you lead with empathy, build a business around empathy? You obviously have a, you have a product and a service that made people feel a certain way, but you also caution to use it in moderation. Why is that? Sometimes it can get you into trouble. <laughs> um, we, um, we were very big on empathy and, and it helped us in terms of the culture we built with our employees and with our customer base. And um, so I'm gonna talk about the positive part first, which is, Again, making everyone feel important, making our maintenance person feel as important as someone on the executive leadership team. Um, by doing that, everybody has you know, this desire for the business to be successful, and that's what you want. You want everyone to be as motivated as you are as a founder, and, and sure enough, that was a great way to get that. Um, sometimes when you get too personal, then um, it could, you know, the business part could be, can be compromised and you just get too much into the weeds and I wouldn't recommend that. But um, especially again in this business because with instructors you're dealing with a very creative, um, ego-driven group and that can be a slippery slope sometimes. To zoom out a little bit, you look at the brands that you successfully built and led with SoulCycle and Flywheel. I was in a classroom last week that had a very interesting discussion around the place in society for brands that make you feel a certain way. And people, maybe some folks here in the audience, at least others that I know, have talked about SoulCycle or Flywheel as 
another form of therapy, it's religion, it's like my church. At what point did that start to happen where people would, would, would share with you that type of reaction and is that okay for a brand to fill that void? I think so. Um, <laughs> um, and it happened right away. And the major reason that people started to feel comfortable connecting with me, because I can only speak for myself, was because of my willingness to be vulnerable in front of people. And I found that if I was vulnerable, it made them feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable. And it's when two people are vulnerable that they connect. And look, we certainly know in this day and age of living the most efficient life we can and technology and everything going digital, it, we need to connect more than ever. I mean, it's a human need that will never go away. And so that's why I think this business is, this type of business is so important and here to stay. I think that's a nice transition into the industry as a whole. You, you got into the health and wellness space when it was really nascent. There weren't the Soul Cycles and other brands out there. Now on every corner in any neighborhood, uh, especially places like Palo Alto and elsewhere, but a lot of metro cities now, you have a million different options. Uh, health and wellness is an $80 billion industry. Where is there space for innovation, if, if at all? So it's a good question because, you know, in thinking about the future of all of this, um, you know, we're seeing what's happening with the industry. We're seeing how it is going uh, into the digital realm. And look, in spinning, we're seeing about the success of Peloton. And the industry is definitely changing. And with, with the amount of choices out there, which you just spoke about, it's very different. You know, when I started SoulCycle and Flywheel, those were the days of people taking six spin classes a week. So, you know, what a formula of, uh, for success in our businesses. But now there's so many choices. I call it exercise snacking. People are, people are not coming to spin class six days a week. They're, they're coming twice a week and then they're going to Barry's twice a week and then they might be boxing or a couple days a week on their Peloton at home. And, and I don't have the answers, actually. It's um, very interesting to me as to where this will go and where this will head. Um, health and wellness, I think, will always be a huge industry moving forward because of the challenges we all have in life in general. And people are finally starting to recognize that we need to take care of ourselves and we want to live long lives and, and kind of this is how to do it. But... Um, I'm very interested in seeing where the fitness industry particularly goes. And I do feel that there will always be room for the group fitness um, part of the fitness industry. Um, I think people always will need this human connection that I just spoke about. The convenience factor will not go away and people will want to be able to have the option of doing it in their home as well. So I think there will be both. That Peloton story just fascinates me because it's fascinating. It's, here you are taking people out of their basement stationary bike and bringing them to their neighborhood gym yes. and giving them a sense of real in-person community. And now 15 years later, you have a company that just went public saying, you know what, let's bring you back into your basement <laughs> and take you away from the very thing that you describe people seeking, which is community. Is that here to stay? 
Well, I'm going to give John Foley a, a shout out, the founder of Peloton. Um, he used to be a big flywheeler and, and soul cycler. And, but more um, flywheel. Yes, of course. Um, yeah. So I actually was just going to talk about the lawsuit, but I better not. Um, oh, uh, <laughs> come on, bring it back. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just between us friends here in the room. This is definitely going to bite me in the ass some way, but um, no, I mean, there's, there's a lawsuit going on. Obviously, I won't go into the details, but there's a patent lawsuit going on against Flywheel from Peloton, and it's just, it's very amusing to me because John modeled the Peloton bike after the Flywheel bike, so that was a big, you know, scratch my head moment, but... Um, but what I was going to say was I was going to give him a compliment because he, um, and, and we're actually friends. We really are. Sounds we're, like We're it, on yeah. good terms. Scratch <laughs> <laughs> my head moment. Yeah. Um, he, um, at Peloton, they actually did a really good job, I think, of bringing the community aspect into this at-home experience. And I was actually really impressed and surprised by it, but um, you know, they have built a huge community at Peloton. I'm sure you've all read about it and it's part of the reason for their success. I mean, Peloton riders having conventions basically and getting, getting together all over the world. So, so he's actually done a great job of doing that. But um, I'm also hearing a lot in, in terms of um, people missing the group experience, the live experience, and, and wanting it back. And we were actually having this conversation before I came out here, but um, another phenomenon that's taken place is a lot of kind of the bigger businesses and corporations are now getting into this sector. And, you know, SoulCycle was acquired, Flywheel was acquired, and the businesses have changed a lot because they've gotten more corporate and they've gotten less personal. And I've heard a lot of complaints about that from riders at both SoulCycle and Flywheel that they miss the way it used to be and they miss the community and, and the attention that was given to the individual because they've all, because it's been lost. And so that kind of speaks to wanting to bring it back full circle to a certain degree. And <clears throat> to bring the conversation back full circle, one of the things we spoke right before coming on stage about was you know, what, what lessons you would give yourself as a teenager thinking about the course of your life as an entrepreneur, the business takeaways, you, you described some of them. But also, we have a lot of business school students in the audience now, and a big reason people come to programs like View from the Top is we're about to go in a lot of different ways. And I think the power of storytelling is that there might be a nugget you can share that maybe tomorrow, maybe in five years or 10 years, you look back on and you think, that was actually really helpful. That was something, I remember that story I heard in, in Ruth's narrative. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you'd wanna make sure you get out if there's one thing folks can take home? Yes, um, you know, that question is often um, verbalized by saying, you know, what would you tell your 16 year old self? And, and that's how I'm, I'm looking at it. And if I could do that, and if I could go back, it w the message would be to relax, that we just, we are not going to have the answers. When we're 16, we might not have the answers when we're 37. Um, 
but we put so much pressure, pressure on ourselves um, in thinking that we should know the answer and, and we don't. And I think the comforting piece of it is that every decision we make um, as we evolve and grow up um, actually does play a part in where we ultimately land. And you know, as I was talking before about my dance classes, I thought I was gonna be a dancer. That, that idea fell through. And at the moment when it fell through, I felt like nothing but a failure. And I was you know, clueless as to what I was gonna do next. And again, at that moment, I had no idea what a huge part my experience with dance would play in my future career. And so, um, so again, it's just, everything happens for a reason, as trite as that is, but it really does. And we learn an enormous amount with every decision we make along the way. And there really is no wrong decision. If it's okay, I'd love to end with a personal question that I think you, you touch on a little bit, or at least led me to want to ask in your book. Mm -hmm. You describe a very uh, close relationship with your father, who I believe passed away from cancer. Yeah. And you describe a scene where you were at his bedside and he said to you that, and I quote, I'm ready to go, I've accomplished everything that I ever set out to do and have enjoyed my life fully. And then you respond by saying that, quote, in that moment, as much as I couldn't help feeling my own sorrow, I was also inspired by his courage and his resolve. A lot of times, death makes us think about our own mortality in certain ways. What did that have on you as you think about the rest of your life? Honestly, I, you know, I, I'm looking forward to the rest of my life and everything that's happened thus far, you know, everything that that will afford me in terms of my experiences. But that was a moment where I, I really thought, I just hope one day I can say that about myself and I already feel like I can. So that feels really good. Thank you, Ruth. Let's go to questions. I think we have a few from the audience. They were pre-submitted, so. Okay. Hi, Ruth. Hi. Um, my name's Dan Knapp. I'm a first year MBA student. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the leadership principles or lessons that you took from being an instructor on the podium and you carried into the boardroom as a CEO. Yeah, I think I would answer that by, again, going back to the empathy piece. And I like to share with people that, you know, going into business, I had absolutely no business experience. And I was raised in a family of physicians and um, surrounded by my parents' friends who were all from the medical community. So I really didn't have a clue. And so when I look back I th and look back at my leadership, leadership style, I think, well, you know, what was my leadership style and, and where did it come from? And the truth is my biggest experience was being a mom. And, um, and so I looked at how I raised my children and what my style was in raising my children. And the truth is I used a lot of qualities that are typically attached to women. And empathy is certainly one of them. And um, I learned that 
the simple idea of the importance of listening to people would be really important in business as well. And um, listening to my employees and, and listening to what works for them and what doesn't work for them. Listening to their despair when they made a mistake, but then encouraging them that you could learn from your mistake and let's see what we can do with that. Again, you know, typical ways in which I brought up my children. And so um, that was really uh, what I drew upon the most in terms of my leadership style. Hi, my name's Connor Hammond. I'm an MBA one, and I have been to both SoulCycle and Flywheel many times, so thanks for bringing awesome. all of us that experience. I'm curious about, um, so you talked about how important it was to help your clients feel noticed and important and like they're a part of a community. I'm curious about um, other elements that you wanted to bring into both of these brands um, as you were thinking about the concepts and how you brought them to life in the brands that you did create? Um, you know, it was about making people feel comfortable in every way. Customer service in general was huge in, and is huge in this, in this field and in this industry. Um, and, you know, that has to do with not only making people feel good, but making everything easy for them. And um, starting Flywheel, you know, was a huge, sorry, let me rephrase that. Being second in an industry was a huge advantage in many, many ways because I got to see what worked at SoulCycle and continue that and what didn't work and improve upon it. So um, a good way to answer the question is when we started Flywheel, we wanted to make sign up more efficient. So at SoulCycle, literally everyone walked in, waited online, and signed up on a list of, you know, a paper list. They still do. And they still yeah. do, yes. And so immediately at Flywheel, we thought, you know, we're adding technology to the bike, so let's, let's be consistent, and let's have small portable laptops set up in our lobby area so people don't have to wait in line and people can, you know, sign up by themselves. At SoulCycle, um, people had to reach for their wallet and pull out some cash for a bottle of water and rent and shoe rental. We made it all inclusive in our price, so every they didn't have to pay for anything. Um, it was all done already. Um, they didn't have to wait in line to get shoes. We had personalized cubby holes, and we saw who was coming to class ahead of time and had their shoes waiting for them. So again, customer service huge. Hi, I'm Jen. Hi. I'm a first-year MBA. Thanks so much for your time. Um, a question I have is around something you mentioned earlier. I think, you know, a lot of us, an ideal state would be to go to Spain, maybe Core Power, Berries a few times a week, Peloton at home. Um, I think, you know, the reality is that's not accessible just based on different income levels. So I'm curious how um, you think accessibility can be incorporated into the wellness industry and boutique fitness particularly. Great question, and it's something um, I'm currently actually thinking a lot about because there's no question, you know, it's not, the boutique industry is really not <laughs> very accessible to, to everyone. And 
I think that that's really needed right now. And um, I know, I happen to know of businesses that are already in the works uh, where they're coming up with a less expensive bike, which will then allow a, a business that's more accessible. Um, a, le a less, uh, sorry, a less expensive at-home bike as well. Um, so I know everyone's trying to think in that direction right now, and I, I think it's so important. Hi, Ruth. Hi. Uh, my name is Laura, also an MBA one. Thanks so much for being here. My question was around the therapy topic you mentioned. I think it's so rare to see someone as successful as you talk about how important it was, and. I'm also a big proponent of mental and physical fitness. So I was wondering for people who maybe haven't tried it yet, or even people who have, how would you describe what therapy or other types of mental fitness helped you change or come to realize? You touched on it a little bit, but maybe if you could talk more in depth about what are some tangible things to help people understand what mental fitness could look like. I could give you, I'm gonna give you two anecdotes on that. Um, I had a very um, difficult marriage. Uh, so my ex-husband had anger management issues, we'll just leave it at that. And, um, and I stayed in it for a long time, way longer than I should have, but I can't really think of it that way because it's who I was at that time. There was a reason why I was there. And it wasn't until therapy, uh, in fact, my first therapy session ever, where I sat down and I, my motivation was my father was dying and I, I had no idea how I was going to go on with that. And um, within the first session, I was asked about to describe my marriage, and I did. And it was the first time in my life that someone said to me, do you understand that that's actually unacceptable behavior? And I think I just broke down in tears. Um, I mean, that was a life-changing moment for me, and that wouldn't have happened if, if I didn't seek out a therapist. And, and that really started my ball rolling in terms of not only leaving the marriage, but starting to really learn about who, who I am and who I was. Um, the second anecdote is was another trauma, it was about another trauma, which was the dissolution of my soul cycle partnership. And I remember uh, probably a year ago, I mean, the dissolution happened in 2007, it's 2019. And um, probably a year ago, I sat in a therapy session and I said to my therapist, is there something wrong with me because I can't seem to get past this trauma. Like, I still get really upset and angry when I think about it. Is there something wrong with me? And she looked at me and she said, why would you ever think there was something wrong with you? Why wouldn't you feel that anger today? It was a horrible, horrible thing. That was incredibly helpful to me. Um, Again, just another moment of putting things, in, being able to put things in perspective and, and have self-empathy. You know, a lot of us don't really know that we have permission to really feel for ourselves. We've all been through traumas, you know? We've all had a lot of challenges growing up and in our adult life. And taking a moment and understanding that and acknowledge, acknowledging that is huge. 
So we have one last thing to do, which is somewhat of a tradition here called the okay. lightning round. Uh-oh. Yep. You a should lot of be pressure. scared. I but, am. But I, uh, I took the liberty to make a, a version two of that game just because you're here and okay. I thought it might be fun. We can see how this works. Uh, it's called Who Said It Best, Play-Doh or SoulCycle? <laughs> it's a very simple game. So I will say a quote. And you will have the option of saying, is it a quote said in a soul cycle class or by Plato? <laughs> and then we will, if you want, we can then ask the audience, you know, to either kind of like ask the audience a question. They can either affirm or deny if that might be the right question okay. or right answer. And then I'll, I'll share who said it. Wait, I have to say one thing. Who's Plato? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I asked the same question. I was looking up some No, because that... <laughs> That question brought this to mind. Can I see a raise of hands of uh, anyone who saw the Saturday Night Live Soul Cycle parody? Okay, thank you. <laughs> this was an inspiration, or that was an inspiration <laughs> for the game. Oh, it was so spot on, by the way. Yeah. Okay, question number one. Everyone listen up here, this is important. Uh, Quote, open yourself up to the possibility that the best part of your life hasn't happened yet. Plato or Soul Cycle? Mike, Tricky, I don't right? Know. Yeah. <laughs> Not so easy. Yeah. You like to do this in person? I, when I wrote these down, I actually couldn't remember who said what, so I had to go back, but I have the answer here. Give a guess. Plato. Plato, what does the audience think? <laughs> it was Soul Cycle. Um, that's all right. Now, it was just a warm-up. Clearly, I'm not giving them yeah. any credit. Yeah. We've got another hour of these, so I'm just kidding. Okay. This is a personal favorite. Nothing beautiful without struggle. Plato or soul cycle? Plato. Plato or soul cycle? Plato. Correct. We're one for Thanks. one. If you're not challenged, you won't change. Soul cycle. Soul cycle. <laughs> Correct. Inhale intention, exhale expectation. Soul cycle. Uh, <laughs> I bet you Plato would have liked that, though, if that counts for something. Never discourage anyone who continually makes progress no matter how slow. Plato or soul cycle? Plato. 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 But a little bit of disagreement there. Of Cur course, I said all of these things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> Courage is knowing what not to fear. Plato or soul? Plato. Plato. <laughs> Plato. Nice. All right, and last one. This is probably the, the toughest one, so okay if you don't get this right. Tap it back. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, and let us thank you, Ruth, for joining us today. Ruth Zuckerman. You've been listening to the View from the Top podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business, based on the Dean's Speaker Series. This interview was conducted by Michael Lewis from the MBA class of 2020. Our music was composed by Lily Sloan. Follow us on social media at Stanford GSB. You can also find more episodes of our show wherever you get your podcasts.